Welcome, friends. On this podcast, we talk about a lot of things, mostly prayer, but also spiritual warfare, parenting adult kids, and what it's like to be a church lady in an increasingly post-Christian world. This is a place where I share interviews with people whose lives have greatly influenced mine. Some are authors, some are ministry leaders, and some people who've just experienced answers in their in, to prayer in their lives. All of them who might be just as baffled as me that God's ways are certainly not ours. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, we can know that he's got this. God's got this. I'm Leanne McCoy, and this is my podcast. Today, I'm taking a deep dive into a book I read while I was at the beach, Return of the Gods by Jonathan Kahn. This book is fascinating, it's troubling, and in a weird kind of way, it's a bit comforting. One reviewer wrote this, In Return of the Gods, Jonathan Kahn takes you on a journey from ancient Sumer, Assyria, and Babylonia to find the puzzle pieces that explain what's now taking place before our eyes. The timing of my reading Return of the Gods just happened to coincide with the preparation that I'm making for a Mother's Day message I'll be sharing at Thompson Station Church in just a few weeks. Um, By the time you're listening to this podcast, it might have been that I shared the Mother's Day message a few weeks ago. (laughs) Either way, I'll post a link to that message on my show notes. Uh, On Mother's Day, I'm going to be camping out in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah had a showdown on top of Mount Carmel um, in the presence of uh, the wicked King Ahab and the 450 prophets of Baal. And as I was preparing and setting up the telling of the story, I went back to 1 Kings 16 to find out who Ahab was. And that's where I discovered that he was more wicked than all the other kings before him. And there had been quite a parade of kings back there in 1 Kings 16. But he was more wicked because of who he married. He married Jezebel, who was actually the daughter of some even worse king. And because of Jezebel's influence, Ahab really created um, the worship of Baal as the national religion and even set up Asherah poles across Israel. I wondered about the pagan practice of the Israelites during Elijah's day and quickly discovered, partly by reading Khan's book, that we're living in that same kind of time now. In this conversation, I'm going to share with you what I mean by that. You might not want to listen to this episode if you have your children in the car with you or somewhere around where they may hear, because I'm going to read an excerpt out of a fictional book written by Lynn Austin. The book is called Gods and Kings, and it's book one in a series of books called Chronicles of the Kings. And um, just believe you me, you don't want your children listening to the excerpt that I read out of this book. And that'll come well into the podcast when I'm talking about uh, the worship of Molech. But I know you're going to be fascinated by what I'm sharing. It needs to be shared. You're going to be enlightened. And be sure, don't forget to check out the show notes because I'll have a link to Khan's book, to Lynn Austin's book, and also to the message that I'll be sharing on Mother's Day. These are the days of Elijah, and my friends, these are the days of us. Elijah arrives on the scene in Israel in the midst of a great falling away from the faith. 
He lives in a season of apostasy, we might call it. And in Israel, and this was during the time of the divided kingdom, Israel was the northern kingdom and the more wicked of the kingdom. Judah wasn't much better, but Judah still maintained the throne of David, just as God promised that they would. And their decline in faith wasn't quite as severe as Israel's, and perhaps it was because they were still ruled by descendants of David. In the division of the nations, the northern kingdom was made up of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, leaving Judah, the remnant, to be made up of only the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. When you read the Chronicles and the Kings, you're flipping back and forth following the history of both of these kingdoms as it relates to their relationship with God. But right now we're going to be diving into Elijah and the days that he was interacting with the king, the very wicked king of Israel, whose name was Ahab. If you're going to, if you glance back at 1 Kings chapter 16, you'll see a parade of wicked kings ruling over Israel. Some ruled because they killed the previous king. Seemingly, the biggest bully won the throne, and all the kings grew increasingly worse until you get to Ahab, son of Omri. And according to 1 Kings 16, verses 30 through 33, Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were a trivial matter, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and proceeded to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's what the scripture says. Ahab, my friends, led the people of Israel into a wholehearted national support of the worship of Baal. They were no longer the people of God. They were now the people of the gods of the Canaanites. And chief among Canaan's gods was Baal. According to Jonathan Kahn in his book, The Return of the Gods, Baal promised the Israelites fertility, fruitfulness, increase, gain, and prosperity. As the Israelites settled and began cultivating the land, the temptation to invoke his powers grew more and more compelling. That was then. And this is now. Also, according to Khan, Baal's mission is to destroy a nation's confidence in God. And this is how Baal invaded America. Now I'm quoting Khan. The lure of Baal had always been a present danger in American culture. For any nation so blessed with material prosperity as was America, there would always be the risk that its prosperity would become an idol and that it would turn to the God of increase and gain. But with the departure from God in the late 20th century, the spirit of Baal became ascendant. Khan goes on then to trace the destruction of America's faith and credits Baal as the spiritual authority that was behind this deconstruction of American's faith. And here's his points. In the 1960s, prayer was taken from public schools and the Bible was banned from being a part of the curriculum. Also in the 60s, newspapers stopped publishing summaries of the past Sunday's sermons. Leading magazines no longer endorsed Christian values. Television stations no longer promoted prayer. Did you know that many stations used to share a brief devotional thought and a prayer before they went off the air nightly? <laughs> this ended. Of course, going off the air nightly ended too. 
And also at that same time in history, praying in public in the name of Jesus became increasingly unpopular. God gave us the Ten Commandments to guard against infiltration and deception by the other gods. So what happened to the teaching and posting of the Ten Commandments in America? In 1980, the Supreme Court ruled it was no longer legal to display the Ten Commandments in public schools, and then they were banished from the public square. A strange ruling, seeing that the actual commandments are etched on the walls of our nation's highest court. <laughs> I was born in 1963 and lived as I was growing up and becoming a young adult when all of these things were going on, and I can remember so many, uh, so much of it. According to Khan, the God of Baal instigated these events, these events. And when these safeguards were removed, Baal and the other pagan gods were given an open door to move in. Don't forget that Baal was the God of prosperity. What represents prosperity in America? Not abundant crops like it did in ancient times, but rather healthy portfolios. Baal's main image was that of a bull. What sits outside the stock market on Wall Street? A great, big, massive uh, statue of an angry bull. It's 11 feet tall, 16 feet long. It weighs 7,100 pounds. Thus, the sign of Baal, the god of increase and gain, is now linked to the New York Stock Exchange, America's house of increase and gain. And this is what Khan wrote about this. Of course, the bull did not come to Wall Street because anyone was seeking a connection with Baal. Nevertheless, it did come. And the fact that the symbol of American prosperity was the same ancient symbol of national prosperity and that it was so without any conscience in intent is even more striking. If the American stock market appeared heading toward increased gain and prosperity, it was the market of the bull, the bull market. So Bale's ancient symbol became not only an American symbol, but one that embodied the same realm and dynamic as it had in ancient times. Khan goes on to explain the ramifications of America's worship of Baal. He writes that once America turned from God, it began deifying the objects of culture. The worship, passion, and energy that had once infused its devotion to God were now directed to that which was not God. And that which was not God now became sanctified, empowered, and enchanted. Don't you love his writing? He goes on to say, Substitutes for God had always existed, but now with the expelling of God, they began taking on the garb of deity. In the absence of God, there was nothing that could not be deified. One's God is that which is one's ultimate reality. Therefore, it cannot be questioned. So there now arose new movements, causes, ideologies, and systems of thought that could not be challenged or questioned, no matter how irrational they were, since they were now gods. The worship of Baal was one of carnality and vulgarity. So as America turned from God to Baal, its culture underwent a process of vulgarization. Its national discourse turned increasingly crude, its entertainment increasingly carnal, and its overall culture increasingly profane. Now, my friends, I'm not going to read you all of Khan's book, but I have got to read you this bit regarding how the spirit of Baal alters people's perception. Khan writes, where there is one God, there is an ultimate and objective reality a unifying reference point and standard by which all can be discerned, measured, and judged. 
Where there is God, there's truth. But where there is more than one God or many gods and Baals, the door is open for many truths, conflicting truths, thus no truth. When one makes an idol, one is fabricating one's own God and thus one's own reality and one's own truth. But when one creates truth, truth becomes a fabrication and ceases to be truth. And when one creates or holds to one's own truth, excuse me, and when one creates or holds to one's own truth, truth again ceases to be. Two plus two cannot equal four for one person and five for another. So one of the signs of Baal's subversion of culture is that the culture will turn away from objectivity to subjectivity. And so as America and Western civilization turned away from God, they began undergoing a process of subjectification. As they moved away from the truth, they moved away from the concept of truth itself, that there was any truth to begin with. The transformation affected language. Truth was not what was true for the individual. If a man believed he was not himself, but was someone or something other than what he was, a child, a woman, a leopard, or a tree, there was no ultimate or absolute truth or any truth. No objective reality to contradict his own personal truth. And if one's personal truth contradicted reality, then it was reality that would have to be bent into conformity. Wow. I mean, doesn't that help you make sense out of what's going on? Baal, the ancient demonic power that lured the Israelites away from God during Ahab's day and Elijah's times, is manifesting his power in our culture today. Khan goes on to credit Baal with the uprising in pantheism, the belief that all is God, that we are God and God is us and we are all one with each other, a new age belief that paves the path toward Eastern beliefs and a more extreme departure from biblical faith. My friends, we are living in the days of Elijah. Now Ahab also made Asherah poles. Asherah poles were used to worship the goddess Ashtoreth or she could be called Ishtar. She was the goddess of good times. The pursuit of wealth gives birth to indulgences, and Ashtoreth is right there ready and willing to pretend to satisfy those appetites. Only her methods make people long for more as they go further away from what truly will satisfy them. Here's what Khan tells us about Ashtoreth or Ishtar. She was so important among the gods of the ancient Middle East that she was given the title Queen of Heaven. She was joined to the celestial lights, to the moon, which some of her mythologies name as her father, and to the sun, which was often named her brother. But it was Venus that she was most associated with. Ashtoreth was the goddess of sexuality. She was also the goddess of war and destruction. She was fiery, impetuous, impulsive, greedy, emotional, demanding, stormy, fierce, carnal, given to rage, romantic, vindictive, full of unbridled passion, insatiable sexual desire, and boundless pride. If denied the object of her desires or if offended, she would become vengeful and violent and could wreak havoc and destruction. Astrid was the breaker of rules, the trespasser of boundaries, and the transgressor of standards and conventions. 
She would demand that which belonged to others. She was also the goddess of prostitution. The prostitutes of ancient Mesopotamia looked at to her as their patron and protector. She was a seductress, a temptress, the goddess who captivated, allured, and snatched away. She was the patron goddess of the tavern. Images of her are found everywhere. She was also an enchantress, a sorceress, a goddess of magic and spells. She specialized in love magic, the enchantment that conjured desire or that altered one's affections and behavior. She seized and possessed her worshipers. She moved and spoke through her priestesses who served as her vessels. Her cult reflected her nature. Worship to her was saturated with carnality, sensuality, and open sexuality. Her temples were like houses of prostitution. Asterisk's return to America would alter the realm of sexuality. Biblical standards and ethics surrounding sexuality and marriage would begin to erode. One of the central defining movements of the 1960s was the sexual revolution. And with it began the progressive undermining and weakening of marriage. Kahn writes, as sexuality was glorified as an end in and of itself, marriage was eroded. As Ashereth had pursued relationship after relationship, so America began doing the same. As the taboo against ending one's marriage began to end, so did marriages. Under the spirit of Ashtoreth, divorce became an epidemic and America was filled with broken homes. She was considered the wife of Baal, but she was never faithful in her marriage. Led by her passions and desires, Ashtoreth chose sexual pleasure and romance over commitment and hard work. And then she doesn't stop with the erosion of marriage, but continues to erode culture by making sex a commodity, by selling it through pornography and prostitution. Her work as a seducer increases intoxication by whatever substances are, avail are available. In fact, she was worshipped in her temples by sex and drugs. She's also the goddess of spells and magic. While Christianity is experiencing rapid decline in America, guess which religion is experiencing incredible growth? USA Today headline in 2021 was this. We're in the middle of a witch moment. Hip witchcraft is on the rise in the U.S. And my friends, if that weren't enough. She's also the sorceress. She's known for her powers to alter people's affections, passions, and thoughts, and at times their very essence. She literally alters human desire, human identity, and human nature itself. In the worship of Ashtoreth, men dressed as women, some of them were even surgically altered, and women also did the same, dressed as men and were surgically altered. There's another God, actually, my friends, mentioned throughout the Old Testament, and his name is Molech. His name literally means abomination. Molech was associated with the darkest of sins, the sacrifice of human beings, and in particular, the sacrifice of children. Even darker, Molech is associated with the sacrifice of children by their parents. The Bible speaks of the act as the most grievous of abominations, as well as the sign of a nation that has turned entirely against the ways of God and become lost to him. I want to stop here and read an excerpt from Lynn Austin's book, Gods and Kings, which is book one in a series I highly recommend you read called The Chronicles of the Kings. I might host an online book club and invite us to read these books together sometime. They are so good. Listen as I read 
the horrors of worship of the worship of Molech. The rumble of voices and tramping feet awakened him. Hezekiah sat up in bed, his heart pounding, and for the first time in his short life, he was terrified. Overnight, his safe, quiet world in the king's palace had vanished, and he listened with mounting panic as the commotion in the hallway outside his room grew louder, closer. Men's voices shouted orders. Doors opened and closed. Children cried out in fear. He turned to his older brother, Eliab, in the bed next to his and saw that he was also awake. Hezekiah scrambled off his bed and climbed in beside him. Eliab, he whispered, what's going on? Who's out there? Eliab shook his head, clutching the bed covers. I, I don't know. They huddled in the darkness, staring at the door, waiting. In the distance, the mournful cry of a shofar trumpeted an alarm over the sleeping city of Jerusalem as the sound of footsteps thundered up the hallway, approaching Hezekiah's room. I'm scared, he said, swallowing back tears. I want mama. Suddenly the door opened and soldiers armed with swords and spears poured into the room, pulling Hezekiah and Eliab off the bed. Hezekiah was powerless to stop them. His body went stiff with fear as they stripped off his nightclothes and forced a white linen garment over his head. The soldiers' hands felt cold and rough as they dressed him and tied on his sandals. The palace servants always treated him gently, smiling and making up little games as they helped him get dressed. But none of the soldiers spoke, and their cold silence terrified him. They dressed Eliab the same way, then hustled them out of the room. More soldiers and a dozen priests in flowing robes crowded the hallway. In the flickering torchlight, Hezekiah saw his half-brothers dressed in the same white garments, huddled together, whimpering softly. His uncle, Messiah, stood over them, armed with a sword. These are all the king's sons, he told the priest. Let's get on with it. My troops have a long march ahead. Everything is prepared, my lord, a priest replied. But before any of them had a chance to move, Hezekiah heard his mother shouting as she ran up the hall from the king's harem. No, wait, stop. She was in her bare feet and was wrapping her outer garment around her as she ran, her dark hair flowing uncombed down her back. Hezekiah tried to squirm free to go to her, but one of the soldiers held him back. What are you doing? She cried. Where are you taking my sons? King Ahaz is holding a special sacrifice before the army marches, Uncle Maaseiah said. Our northern border is under attack. What does that have to do with my children? They're only babies, she hugged her robes tightly around herself and shivered. Ahaz wants all of his sons to take part, Uncle Maaseiah signaled to his soldiers, and they quickly moved across the hallway to block her path. But not before Hezekiah saw all the color drain from her face. No, wait, she cried. What kind of sacrifice? Uncle Messiah turned his back on her and motioned to his men, let's get on with it. Hezekiah's mother began to scream and the sound filled him with terror. He could hear her fighting desperately to get past the wall of men to reach him and Eliab, but the soldiers held her back. Mama, Hezekiah cried out, I want mama. He struggled to go to her, but one of the men picked him up as if he weighed nothing at all. Hezekiah wanted to fight, but he felt limp with terror, and the soldiers who held him was much too strong. His mother's screams faded in the distance behind them as the soldier carried Hezekiah through the maze of corridors and down the palace stairs to the courtyard. Outside, the sky had begun to lighten as the sun rose behind the Judean hills. A huge crowd of people stood waiting in the palace courtyard, spilling over into the street outside the gate. A brisk wind whipped Hezekiah's tunic against his legs as the soldier lowered him to the ground. 
The thin fabric offered no warmth against the morning chill, and Hezekiah shivered with cold and fear. He had never seen so many soldiers before. Lined up in even rows, their swords gleaming as they stood at attention before his father, the king. King Ahaz wore the crown of Judah on his head and the royal robes embroidered with the symbol of the house of David. He was a large round-bellied man whose voice always sounded loud and angry. Everyone in the palace cowered before him and Hezekiah had learned to fear him too. He couldn't imagine why his father would order him and his brothers from their beds at dawn to stand with all these soldiers. As Hezekiah stood shivering in the windy courtyard, the tension in the air, the solemn look on every face filled him with dread. The assembly began to march, led by King Ahaz and Uncle Messiah. The city elders and nobles followed close behind. Then the escort of soldiers and priests began to move. One of the soldiers gripped Hezekiah's shoulders and pushed him forward with all the other young princes of Judah. But instead of climbing the steep hill behind the palace of the temple of Yahweh, where the king usually offered his sacrifices, the procession wound down the hill through the narrow streets. They passed the spacious dressed stone mansions of the nobility. They marched through the market area, now quiet and deserted. The booths shuttered. The colorful awnings rolled up for the night. Hezekiah saw people watching the procession from their rooftops and peering from behind latticed windows. As the street narrowed, the soldiers squeed closer and their swords pressed against Hezekiah's side. Where were they taking him? What was going to happen to him? Twice he stumbled as he missed a stair in the street, but the soldiers quickly gripped his arms and pulled him to his feet. They finally reached the massive gate on the southern wall of Jerusalem and passed down the ramp out of the city. Now the silent dawn began to echo with the beat of drums pounding in the distance. Hezekiah saw a craggy wall of cliffs, dark and foreboding, guarding the entrance to the Valley of Hinnom. As the procession turned into the narrow valley, he glimpsed a column of smoke billowing high into the air ahead of him, carried aloft by the wind. The priest who marched beside Hezekiah began to chant, Molech, Molech, Molech. The men in the procession joined in, chanting louder and louder to the throbbing beat of the drums, Molech, Molech, Molech. Suddenly, the wall of soldiers parted and Hezekiah caught his first glimpse of Molech. He knew he wasn't dreaming. He knew the monster was real because he never could have imagined anything so horrible. Molech stared down at him from a throne of brass as the fire in the pit beneath the hollow statue blazed with a loud roar. Tongues of flame licked around the edges of his open mouth. His arms reached out as if waiting to be filled, forming a steep incline that ended in his open waiting mouth. Hezekiah's instincts screamed at him to run, but his legs buckled beneath him as if made of water. He couldn't move. One of the soldiers picked him up and carried him up the steps of the platform that stood in front of the monster's outstretched arms. Molech, 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 the crowd chanted, chanted to the pounding rhythms of drums. Hezekiah's heart throbbed in his ears as he huddled beside his brother Eliab. The billowing smoke made his eyes water. The heat burned his face. The chief priest faced Molech with his arms raised, pleading with the god in a frenzied cry, but the chanting crowd and the noise of the flames drowned out his words. When his prayer ended, the priest lowered his arms and turned around. Hezekiah saw the cold, intent look on the man's face, and he tried to back away, but one of Molech's priests gripped his arms he couldn't escape. Which one is the king's firstborn, the chief priest asked. 
Uncle Masaya's signet ring flashed in the firelight as he laid his hand on Eliab's head. This one. The priest grabbed Eliab and lifted him high in the air. Hezekiah watched in horror as the man tossed his brother into the monster's waiting arms. Eliab rolled down the incline toward the open mouth, clawing at the brazen arms to try to stop his fall, but the metal was hot and polished smooth. He couldn't hold on. Eliab's pitiful screams wailed above the roar of the flames and the pounding drums, even after he had fallen over the rim and Molech had devoured him. His cries coming from the depths of the flames lasted only an instant, though it felt like a lifetime. Then... A terrible stench, unlike any Hezekiah had smelled before, filled his nostrils and throat until he gagged. His stomach turned inside out and he retched, as if trying to vomit out the memory as well. But the nightmare didn't end with Eliab's death. Other noblemen and city officials offered their sons to the priest, and he tossed them one after the other into Molech's arms. They rolled helplessly down into the flames as Eliab had. Hezekiah cowered in a heap on the platform and covered his face to escape the sight. But the horror of this day was engraved on his soul. He began to scream and he didn't think he would ever be able to stop. I hope you're as shaken by that reading as, as I am. It's a, it's a horrific, a horrific scene out of history, something that happened over and over again. Khan writes, it was not safe to be a child in the ancient pagan world. One could be murdered at the moment of one's birth or before or after. It was not at all uncommon for children to be killed in their mother's wombs. With the pagan devaluation of human life came a bent toward earth, the spirit, uh, toward death, the spirit of Molech. Therefore, when a nation or civilization turns away from God, we can expect the same values and horrors to be relived. It was the Christian faith and the biblical valuing of human life that brought protection to young and unborn children and the definitive end of their large-scale murder. So when the gods were cast out of Western civilization, a spirit of death went with them. The gospel removed their altars and the blood that stained them. As the gods departed, lives were saved. That was then, but this is now. America is offering up its own children as sacrifices. Consider this headline I read this week. Planned Parenthood committed 375,155 abortions and received $670.4 million in taxpayer funding in 2022. My friends, today, mothers aren't sacrificing their children to gain favor from Molech, per se, like the ancient mothers were doing. The ancient mothers were sacrificing their children, or in this case, it wasn't the mothers at all, it's the fathers, in order to invoke blessing and prosperity and gain or a win on the battlefield. But today's mothers and fathers are killing the babies in their wombs because their birth and life would hamper her life, her time, her energy, her educational plans or career prospects her future earning capabilities. 
and the child would be a burden to those aspirations. And not only that, but what kind of life would that be for the child? The proponents of abortion would say. Khan mentions this verse in Isaiah, and I think it's a great place to land this conversation today. God asked this question and he gave us his promise in Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely she may forget, yet I will not forget you. I used to read that verse and think, no, it's literally physically impossible for a nursing mother to forget her child. Because if she were so scatterbrained or so uncaring that she wanted to forget that child, her body would literally remind her of it. But God knew that the day would come when women would forget their nursing child, that women would forget the nurturing that they were made to, to be and do with the child that is in their womb. And so he said that even if and when that happens, we need to remember that he will not forget us. I want you, what just came to my mind was there probably are people listening to me that might have had an abortion earlier in their life. I want you to know that God has not forgotten you and that when Jesus suffered and died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He knew just how much suffering had to be received to account for anything that we have ever done. And sin is sin in the eyes of God. And um, unholiness and unrighteousness was all wiped away when Jesus paid the price for our redemption. God has already forgiven you for anything you've ever done. And so any kind of grief or or, um, or uh, shame that's that rises in you, even when I speak on this subject, or that would keep you from speaking out against abortion today, is is merely a, a scheme of the enemy, the same one that that has these gods working at his command, the same scheme just to stop you from fighting the good fight and establishing God's kingdom in places that you are uniquely gifted to fight and to and to take take control. Um, because of what you've experienced, God will be glorified through now ever how you want to work and minister through that. So the truth, though, being and the encouragement I want all of you to hear about all of this that I have said in this podcast is that God has promised us in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, that he will not forget us. My friends, the scripture says Ahab did what was evil in the sight of God more than all who were before him. Ahab worshipped Baal, Ashtoreth, and eventually Molech made his way into that culture as well. But as you can see, as I have um, quoted from Jonathan Kahn's book, Return of the Gods, these, these days we're living in now, these are the days of Elijah. And the truth is, God will not forget us. Two days ago, well, at the at the recording of this podcast, we were honored at Thompson Station Church to host a community-wide worship and prayer service on the National Day of Prayer, May 4. And what happened in our worship center was beyond 
comprehension beyond words to see all the pastors from all different denominations coming together in one place at one time, encouraging their prayer teams. We had over 60 people gathered who just circled the congregation, the ones that serve as intercessors in their local congregations. We all gathered together and got to be encouraged to see how many of us there are that are interceding on behalf of the kingdom for this community. And we circled the congregation so that we could be there to pray for them and with them and worship with them. And so they could see that they are not alone, that we have watchmen on the wall all over this community. And then over 800 people were gathered in that place. And I'm telling you, the worship was with complete abandon. And the prayers were prayed with such spirit anointing and authority and power. I, I don't even have words. I don't, Jonathan Khan has better words than I have to describe it, but it was incredible. And I'm here to tell you today that the hope of America is there. It is right there. When God's people, when his people worship and pray and intercede and do it in unity and press into God, believing and receiving, then we will get a move of heaven that we long for and that God longs to bring. So let's pray, my friends. Let's be aware. Let's be wise as we live in these days of Elijah. And let's usher the presence and the power and the glory of God into this place. In Jesus' name, let's do this. So how are you feeling? Isn't this fascinating, troubling, and somehow comforting all at the same time? I love how God gives us insight and discernment when we need it most. I'm including a link to Lynn Austin's book, Gods and Kings, along with the link to Jonathan Kahn's book, Return of the Gods, in my show notes. Be sure to share this episode with anyone who might enjoy it. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Leanne McCoy podcast so you don't miss a single episode. I want to talk to you just for one second as we sign off on this episode about the praying that's going on at your church. If your church is not praying as much as you think maybe a church should, after all, Jesus said he wanted his church to be a house of prayer, then go visit my prayer clinic website and learn more about the prayer clinic ministry. You can join my email community so that you'll receive encouragement twice a month. Um, with some practical help on how to get your prayer ministry going, how to keep it going, how to encourage those that are praying um, and holding up the, the power of prayer in your congregation. You might also be somebody who's enjoying this warm weather of the spring and you're thinking, you know what, I'd love to take a trip to the mountains. And it would be even more, more fun if I could take it with a group of my girlfriends. Or if you're a pastor and a wife and you're listening to this, you're thinking, gee, it would be great to get away and just fellowship with a couple of other pastors and wives. If that's you, then I want you to check out leannemccoy.com. That's L-E-I-G-H-A-N-N-M-C-C-O-Y.com and look for the retreats that we're offering through our website and um, see if one of our dates might work with your schedule and come and join us at our laughing place in the North Carolina mountains. 
As always, my friends, it's a joy to share with you. I'd love to hear from you on any of my social media platforms. Until next time, y'all keep on praying.